I feel pretty comfortable that that we made the right decision for her. But it's still something that I think, I don't think I realized how hard that decision would be to make. We wanted to start off with the voices of people whose experience doesn't always reach the spotlight, surrogate decision makers. Surrogates are people who make decisions for patients who can't make those decisions for themselves. And they face a unique set of challenges that we don't generally learn about in our training. Today, we're going to learn about those challenges and find ways that clinicians can support surrogates through the decision-making process. Welcome back to At the Bedside. I'm Margot. I'm Joffer. And I'm Tamar. Let me introduce our expert, Dr. Lisa Vig, who spoke with us about her research on surrogate decision-makers. I am a geriatrician and a palliative care specialist. I am based at the Seattle VA Hospital. And I am also on the faculty at the University of Washington. So I am the chair of the ethics committee here at the VA. We'll also be speaking with four people who have been surrogate decision makers, who we'll introduce in full a bit later. We wanted to start with a very brief bit of background on how surrogate decision makers, or healthcare proxies, get appointed and how they make decisions. So they're usually chosen by patients, either in an advanced directive or by just telling a clinician, which often happens when a patient is admitted to the hospital. If a patient doesn't have capacity and doesn't have a surrogate, there are legal hierarchies that we can follow to designate one. For example, in New York, it's a legal guardian, followed by a spouse or domestic partner, then an adult child, and so on. But how are surrogates supposed to make decisions for the patient? What are they supposed to take into consideration? The usual expectation is that they'll follow the patient's expressed wishes, either from conversations they've had or an advanced directive. But often this information doesn't account for every possible situation. So then what? We ask surrogate decision makers to use substituted judgment. Essentially we're saying, you know the patient well, what would he have wanted if he could make this decision for himself? And we kind of take that for granted. But if we think about it, why is substituted judgment considered the best path forward? And is it really that achievable? If you look in the ethics literature, there's actually kind of a raging debate about this. You know, in America, we are very autonomy focused. If we're focusing on autonomy, we're letting people make their own decisions, then I think substituted judgment sort of arose when people couldn't sort of participate anymore as a way to continue to honor their autonomy and their personhood when they couldn't tell us what they wanted anymore. But as we know, that's problematic, right? Because there are a bunch of studies that show, you know, they've asked the patients what they would want, and then they go find their surrogates and ask them what the patient would want, and then they match it up. And it's really not that great. So as Dr. Vig points out, substituted judgment doesn't always meet its goal. And beyond that, sometimes a surrogate may not even have a guess for what a patient would want. So then what? If the patient's known values can't guide the decision, then we turn to the best interest standard the decision most likely to protect the patient's well-being in terms of pain and suffering, potential benefit, quality of life. But unfortunately, this can also get pretty subjective. So surrogates really have their work cut out for them, both with each difficult decision and the difficult emotions each decision brings. And the rest of the episode will really focus on how to help them in this hard position. We'll start by hearing firsthand from surrogates about some major challenges they face. Then we'll think about some challenges from the clinician side and finally review some basic takeaways to better support surrogate decision makers in this incredibly tough role. Now that we've talked about some of the logistics around surrogate decision making, we wanted to turn to the surrogates themselves. 
We interviewed four people who have served as surrogate decision makers, Jenny, Allie, Mariah, and Judy. I want to point out first that these are not a representative sample. We pulled our social networks, and so we ultimately spoke with people who were English-speaking, health literate, and they either have doctors as friends, or in the case of Allie and Mariah, they are physicians themselves. And given that these are people with a decent amount of privilege in that respect, it was humbling for me to hear how hard this was even for them. The first challenge that came up in these interviews was that it wasn't always clear what the role was or how much of a responsibility it could become. Here's Jenny, who made decisions for her mom. My mother had primary biliary cirrhosis. She was diagnosed when I was very young. She actually had it twice. The summer before she passed, which was the summer of 2018, due to various life circumstances, I became her health proxy. As she points out, there isn't exactly a surrogates 101 course out there. I had very little knowledge of what being a proxy meant. I just kind of signed the paperwork. I don't know if people usually have a conversation about what it actually means to to be a surrogate. And and it wouldn't have changed anything, right? I still would have done it because I needed to, and I knew it was the right thing to do. But I think it would have been helpful to me to know what that would mean. Dr. Ali Trainer spoke about this as well. She spent last year as a pulmonary critical care fellow at the Harvard Combined Program, and will be returning to the fellowship after spending this year as a chief resident at Beth Israel Deaconess. I feel like having been in the opposite end of that conversation, being the one guiding people through making these decisions for their family members, I I thought that I knew what it was like to be the family member, but I, I don't think I really had the extent. I wish I knew maybe just a little bit how big of a burden it would be, even if you feel like you have a clear sense of what the person would want and what their prognosis is. Allie and her mother shared decision-making responsibilities for her grandmother. So when I was a senior resident, my grandmother, who had longstanding heart failure, was being evaluated for a TAVR because she was having worsening aortic stenosis. And unfortunately, before she completed the workup, she actually ended up having multiple admissions for cardiogenic shock. Another theme that came up in these conversations was how challenging it was to understand and honor the patient's goals of care. First, it's hard to have serious conversations. Here's what Jenny said when I asked if she felt like she had enough information about her mother's wishes. No, not at all. And I don't think anyone did. I mean, when you're dying for 26 years, you don't want to think about dying. You don't want to think about the end. Jenny was eventually able to get her mom to talk about her goals of care, but it wasn't easy. This is a really common issue, which makes it impossible to decide based on expressed wishes, and tough to use substituted judgment. But even in cases when patients are willing to have these conversations about serious illness and death, it's still hard to feel truly prepared. Dr. Mariah Robertson, a geriatrics fellow at Johns Hopkins, spoke to this sentiment when it came to her mother. My mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease. I really was like the decision maker for her uh, the first two years of medical school when she really had declined quite a bit and I needed to actually make decisions on her behalf. My grandmother had Alzheimer's disease as well and she was she lived with us and my mom was her um, surrogate decision maker. And so we had many conversations in the context of my grandmother um, that allowed me to better understand what my mom would want um, based on how she you know, honored my grandmother and how she spoke about what she would want in that context. We did formal paperwork, a medical power of attorney, and 
financial power of attorney and all that paperwork involved some level of outlining what decisions I would be making in her behalf, but, you know, as an advanced directive does, but, it, you know, at the time I remember being like, oh, this is way more information than I need. And then later, you know, as you're actually making decisions, you're like, man, I wish I had asked more details. Like, I wish I knew more about what she really had hoped for. Even with plenty of information, it's still tough to figure out exactly what to do. The little intricacies of what happens as somebody declines in a disease process. And, you know, you never know how that will look and what the person will, how their disease will progress. And so for her with dementia, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, like, don't do X that might prolong my life. But then, you know, you get to the point where you're sort of deciding, like, do I do I take her to the hospital if she aspirates or do we not? So in her case, she aspirated and they, they ended up sending her to the hospital, even though that wasn't part of what we had hoped for her. Um, but then I was kind of faced in the ED with a decision of like, do we treat this, put her on BiPAP, give her antibiotics and see if she recovers or not. And, and in the moment, you know, even though I knew like big picture, 30,000 foot view, what we had talked about her wanting and not wanting, it's like, uh, another ball game when you're kind of in the ring facing it, right? Like, how can you ever walk through every single mm-hmm. possible scenario? A third challenge came up in our conversation with Judy Friedman, who helped make decisions for her father. Um, my father, for the last, I want to say, five years of his life, struggled with his diabetes and struggled with his kidney function and struggled with pulmonary issues. He was in and out of the hospital with constant UTI infections. And UTI infections, I'm told, at that age in men, very often brings on the dementia that he suffered from every time he had a UTI infection. The last time he went into the hospital with the UTI, it started out as a UTI um, with his numbers going very high. And from there, it just, everything sort of His system really just started shutting down. Um, As his systems were shutting down is where we started having to make some decisions. She spoke about how difficult it was to balance her decision-making responsibilities with everything else going on in her life. Judy lives in New York, but wanted to be there for her dad when he got sick. For the three months prior to that, where he kept being hospitalized, and then every time he was hospitalized, I would have to fly down to Florida. There was also a tremendous amount of stress on her mother. Not only did he not have a quality of life and kept getting sick, my mom had no life either. She was either working or running with him to the hospital, one or the other. There was no, there was no time for anything else because he was constantly being admitted to the hospital. Finally, all the surrogates I spoke with talked about the emotions that came up for them. Emotions that in many cases they grappled with for months or years after their loved one's death. Mariah spoke about how hard it was to honor her mother's wishes by letting her go. And I think also the hard part is like, I loved her, you know, being with her, even though her quality of life was probably not as good as it, or it probably wasn't much, but I still valued being able to visit my mom, even though she didn't have great cognitive function. And so, you know, how do you set aside what your selfish wishes are for, for like what you, you know, you, you want and, and what, what actually is in line with what they would want. So she had aspirated And they sent her to the emergency room and I was in the emergency room and the physician was like, okay, we're going to take her upstairs and give her antibiotics and we're going to put her on the BiPAP, but I think she's going to be okay. You know, I know she's DNR, DNI, but you know, I think she's going to be okay. We'll get her back. And in that moment I was like, oh, that sounds really nice. Like, (laughs) let's, 
do it, mm. right? Like keep her on the BiPAP, which she looked miserable on, by the way. Um, you know, give her IV antibiotics, like give her some fluids, admit her to the hospital and let's just do this thing. Cause I value so much like being close to her, but I yeah. knew, like, I knew that like I had felt for, for months that like, this was not the quality of life she would have wanted. I, I knew based on how she talked about my grandmother's state and how she felt about her own state, if she got sick, that that would not be what she would want. But in the moment, it was very, very, very hard not to say like, yeah, just do those things. Like I want her around longer. I need her around longer. Surrogates often have to work within complex family dynamics, which has the potential to place strain on their relationships. Here's Allie. I think one of the biggest things I struggled with at the time and that I still find a little challenging is a little bit of a feeling of guilt. So I think my family has has never said these words to me, but I think being the one in that situation who had the medical knowledge, I was really guiding them and making the decisions that, that we made. And I, again, they have never, never said to me that they blame me or feel like I made the wrong decision, but I, I really was the one making the decision. And I, I guess sometimes wonder if they place any blame on me. When surrogates allow a patient's care to be capped or de-escalated, they can feel a sense of responsibility for their loved one's death. I know that my grandmother wouldn't have wanted to be kept alive in a way that isn't consistent with the way she was living her life before. And I, I do feel like I made the right decision, but I think um, it was still so hard to finally make that call and say, you know, this is this is the time to switch our focus and keep her comfortable because although I can rationalize and know that we are not really making this decision, she's in her 90s and it's her time, it feels like you're the one deciding it's her time, even though I can conceptualize that that's not actually the case. It was so important to me that she died a good death when it became clear that she was going to die. and the options that were available to me and to her family were limited. And the feeling that I will have for the rest of my life that I made the decision for my mother to die is one that I will have to live with for the rest of my life. Even knowing that it was the right thing to do the end of it at the end of it all i still i still send my father to die between the death of a loved one and the weight of the decisions surrogates often have emotional trauma that can be incredibly difficult to overcome there was guilt most of it was guilt it, it i pretty much spent the next the year it took me about a year after he passed to really come out of that like depression type you know, emotion. I mean, I was still, you know, I was still living life. I got up, I went to work every day. I did what I needed to do, but there was just no, you know, there was no happiness. There was no joy. My children are not my medical proxy. I refuse to allow them to be, having gone through it myself, I will, I refuse to allow my children to be my medical proxy. I don't want them to have to make that decision. It was painful. It was horrible. Um, it has taken years to get over. Um, the things that I saw are things that I, I would not wish on anyone. I had nightmares about it for years. Um, I still have nightmares about it. Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD. Like, 
It is very serious to be a surrogate. Studies have shown that anxiety, depression, and PTSD are common in people who have been surrogate decision makers. Rates of PTSD symptoms are as high as 80% in surrogates who have made end-of-life decisions for a patient in the ICU. It is incredibly humbling hearing the pain that surrogates have to endure. And so it's no wonder that this grief spills over to us as clinicians and can make our job supporting them very difficult at times. We want to take some time now to outline a couple particularly tough challenges, and then we'll end the episode with some big takeaway lessons that we learned from our surrogate speakers. So the first major challenge, what do we do when a surrogate seems to be making decisions that differ from a patient's stated wishes or living will? And these situations are unfortunately pretty common. A meta-analysis looking at studies measuring the concordance of patient and surrogate decision-making found that surrogates accurately predicted patient preferences only 68% of the time. So there are different reasons why uh, a surrogate might make a decision that seems inconsistent. I mean, we already mentioned how, you know, a living will is not going to address everything, right? So it may be that. Or sometimes it's because the situation has changed, right? I completed my living will 20 years ago. Since then, I've had experiences that have led me to change my outlook. Right. And it turns out that many studies show that patient treatment preferences can be very inconsistent over time. For example, a prospective series of patient interviews showed that patients can have one perspective on treatment when they're a healthy outpatient and another when they're hospitalized and even revert back after discharge. Patients who say they can never tolerate living in a state of disability end up changing their treatment preferences when they do actually experience some disability. You know, maybe realizing that quality of life is possible, even with compromised health. Surrogates may have insight into this, and it's why we've come to rely on them in these situations. So I think the thing to start out with is to sort of approach the situation with curiosity and not automatically assume bad things about the surrogate and their motives and sort of take the time to be human in a way and just sit down, spend time with the surrogate and hear their perspective and hear the reason why they are saying what they're saying. Still, we do have reason to believe that surrogates may be seeing things from their own perspective rather than just the patient's something Dr. Vig realized in her own work interviewing patient surrogates. Sometimes it's the fact that the surrogate is sort of not really sure yet. Maybe they're getting used to the fact that their loved one is really sick, or maybe they are waiting for more time to pass in hopes that the person will get a little better. Ah, see, this is the part that makes me worried. The surrogate wants something for themselves and their own emotional well-being that doesn't jive with what the patient would want for themselves. And at the end of the day, aren't the patient's wishes the final word? This always seemed pretty clear to me, but Dr. Vig actually pushed us to see beyond this kind of black and white thinking. I think, or at least when I went to med school, we were sort of taught to focus on the patient. And yes, the patient is our primary duty, but as someone who does geriatrics and palliative care in both of those specialties, the family's perspective also matters. And so there's one sort of approach of relational autonomy where you don't just consider the patient, but also those around them. And I think, you know, if we're going to think about outcomes for the patient, but also good outcomes for the family, taking a sort of a relational autonomy approach 
might make more sense. And, you know, there is a literature on leeway and on patients saying, you know, this is what I want, but if, you know, she can get on with her life easier having made a different kind of decision and I'm in a state that I don't really want for a while, that's okay because I care about that person. So that was sort of how we thought through that approach. Right. So paradoxically, it may be an extension of the patient's own autonomy to allow their surrogate to make decisions that they can live with, even if the patient wouldn't have chosen that for themselves. And this bears out in published surveys of patients, where only about 20 to 30% felt that their advanced directives should be followed to the T. In other words, most patients understand that surrogates will have to use some of their own feelings and judgments to navigate the situation. So maybe we don't need to be quite so distressed that we're doing wrong by the patient when we listen to their surrogates. But this brings us to another major kind of disagreement. What do we do when the surrogate wants everything done, but the medical team feels that the care is futile? I can't tell you how many times, you know, in like a palliative care or an ethics consult, you know, the team has sort of decided that things are futile. They've had multiple family meetings. They have sort of barreled ahead thinking that the person should be DNR and thinking that they need to switch to comfort care, but haven't first sort of taken the time to get to know the patient's perspective. Because if you have somebody who is sort of vitalist, meaning every second of breathing or your heart beating is worth it, regardless of you know, cognitive status, et cetera. If that is the person you're caring for and you don't know it, then you can, you know, bring up DNR as many times as you want, but they're probably not going to budge, right? And so if you put yourself in the family's shoes, every couple of weeks, they're getting a request for yet another family meeting where yet another bunch of new doctors who they don't know or trust are going to try to, you know, back them into a corner about DNR again. And, you know, people start wondering why the family stopped visiting or why they stopped answering the phone. It's because every time they do, people are bringing up the same damn thing over and over and over that just doesn't fit with the way they see the world. Uh, yeah, you know, I've definitely been guilty of this thinking that the situation is all about us and how well we can talk them into seeing things our way. And, you know, maybe in a way we're trying to vent our moral distress to the family, like saying to the surrogate that if you saw what we saw caring for your loved one, you wouldn't want to keep pushing medical care like this. But then again, these are questions about values rather than right or wrong. And it's worth noting that those of us in medicine often have different values from our patients. You know, for example, surveys of healthcare professionals show that we put a significantly greater emphasis on dying at home rather than in the hospital. I think reminding people that not every death is going to end up the way we would like it for ourselves, and that's okay. And sometimes for families, knowing that everything was done is going to help them. Ultimately, the surrogates will be the ones carrying the patient's memory long after we've left their care. And our time together with them at the end of the patient's life can help shape that final memory. So serving the needs of surrogates is also in a way serving and curating the patient's legacy within them.
So what can we do to better support surrogate decision makers in these incredibly difficult roles? The first thing is obvious. There are just so many breakdowns in communication about hard situations with the patient's loved ones. So where should we start? Dr. Vig's big message was to always begin by listening. Starting out not barreling ahead with your own agenda, but sitting down, taking the time to hear the surrogate talk about their the patient's life so that you have a sense of that person, but also letting them talk about their own life and validating the emotions that they're having, validating that it's really stressful to have a loved one who's so sick and to be making these really hard decisions. And the importance of listening goes beyond just the information we can learn from the surrogates. Allowing surrogate decision makers to be heard has a big impact on their experience. A 2004 study in critical care medicine tape-recorded and analyzed 51 family meetings. The authors found that family satisfaction with physician communication was not associated with how long these meetings were, but instead the proportion of time that the family spent speaking rather than listening to the physicians. Still, time can feel like that precious resource we don't have. So I'm kind of biased, but I think if you take the time early on, it'll save you a whole lot of time later on because it's kind of all about trust, isn't it? And taking the time to gain that surrogate's trust. And I think you as the overworked intern don't have to be the only one doing this. There can be other people who are part of the team who the surrogate recognizes as members of the team who might have a little more time, like our chaplain. This takes us to our second lesson. When leaning into these conversations, don't miss an opportunity to validate emotions. Studies show that even 40 seconds of time spent empathizing with patients or surrogates can decrease levels of anxiety and increase trust. Surrogates are an incredibly vulnerable place, and validating emotions is just a concrete way of showing our support. Having been in that position, Allie now uses her experience as a surrogate to inform the way she talks to families in the ICU. And I think the biggest thing that has stuck with me is whatever the family ends up deciding is, is what is right for them and is what is right for their family member. And so once they've made their decision, I tell them firmly that they are making the right decision because I think that's something that people struggle with afterwards is wondering, did I do the right thing? So I try and really emphasize that to them and say, you know them best, you're making the right decision. Um, and the other thing I try and say to people too is if they make the decision to make the patient comfort measures only, then I'll say to them, you know, this feels like you are making this decision, but this is your loved one's time and their body is really making this decision and you're just respecting that and allowing them to pass peacefully and, and you're doing the right thing. I don't always necessarily agree, but I have to realize that they know way more about this person than I do. And so I need to respect that and just affirm for them that they are doing the right thing. Like we were discussing before, what we consider to be a good death isn't everyone's concept of a good death. We've only known this patient and their surrogate for a very short time. So we have to have faith that the decision they're making is the right one for them. And another one that I have thought about a lot since then 
was surrogates making a decision that they realized that they could live with. Because I think in a lot of these cases, the patient is going to die regardless, whether they die this week or two months from now. But the surrogate is going to go on. And if they have made decisions that they feel were the right decisions, I suspect they will have less problems after the death. One of the absolute worst things we can do as clinicians is to get confrontational with surrogates as they're going through this difficult process. I have like burnt into my mind the ED physician telling me I was going to kill her. They said, you know, she's going to die. You're killing her if you don't put her on BiPAP and if you don't put her on antibiotics. It's burned in my mind, in my memory, that that doctor told me I was killing my my mom in that moment, you know, and I I know that that's not true, but it, I can see how surrogates could feel extreme guilt if they were trying to sort of honor whatever their family member had communicated to them or honor their best interpretation of what that was um, and to be told by a medical provider that they're being negligent or that they're harming them or that they're killing a family member like that, that stuff really sticks with you and can really, really, really harm the way you remember your family member's life and their death. Words matter. And even one offhanded comment can have a tremendous impact. As we move from one case to the next, it's easy to forget that we're curating what may be the surrogate's lasting memories of their loved one's illness or death. The next takeaway is how important it is to provide honest and clear prognostic information. While he was in in and out of the hospitals, there's not one doctor that said, we can make him stable, but we can't make him better. Had they said that to me earlier on within the last, you know, year of his life, um, we may have done things, you know, differently so that he didn't have that six weeks of suffering at the end that he did. And the more clinicians are involved, the harder it can be for the surrogate to get a clear message. Dr. Vig's own research has shown that surrogates often get confusing and conflicting information from multiple medical team members, and here's her suggestion. Sometimes what we need to do is actually have a provider meeting. So not with the family, not with the patient, but all of the different disciplines in the same room to all talk about their different perspectives so we can all get on the same page. So we're not all going in and saying different things that's confusing the family. It's important to remember that straightforward information on prognosis not only impacts decisions, but also expectations. And I was sitting in her gastroenterologist's office and he was talking about getting a tips. And I texted a bunch of my medical friends and they were like, do you know how serious that is? Like, do you have any idea how, how very, very serious that is? And, and meanwhile, her doctor was saying, oh, you're going to be great. Like 10 years, you'll have 10 years longer. Like this is going to be totally fine. And the tips went horribly wrong. Um, it went, it went very, very wrong. And we're not saying giving prognostic information is easy, but it's so important. And if you'd like to hear some pointers on how to go about it, we're going to put a quick plug here for our At the Bedside episode on that very topic. This brings us to lesson four. Surrogates need guidance. The information we deal with is complex, and levels of health literacy will vary. Start off by clarifying the role of the surrogate, which is to represent the patient's values. Our role as the medical team is to then help translate those values into medical decisions. If we know the patient's values and preferences, sometimes for the surrogates, it can be helpful if we make a specific recommendation, because that, by doing that, we're sort of sharing the burden of decision-making. But as I said before, we can't 
make recommendations that aren't based on the patient's preferences. Trying to think through each decision alone as a surrogate is just needlessly stressful, as Jenny pointed out to us. Early on in her hospitalization, when she wasn't waking up, for some reason, they had to make a decision whether or not to put in a line. Resident calls me and is like, should we put in a line? And I, I was like, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I, I don't have any medical training. Do, do you think she should have a, have, have a line put in? And I think there's some sort of, there's some sort of middle ground here, right? Where like people I know want to feel empowered to make their own health decisions. But there are certain decisions that I think if you don't have medical training, you just don't know, you know, what the right thing to do is. Very often, surrogates get worn out by the number of decisions they have to make, in part because, from their perspective, each one can feel so significant and stressful to think through. So I think the clinician should be aware of decision fatigue is another thing. By the time I got in touch with palliative care, I had already been asked to make hundreds of decisions. And I know that doctors also have to make hundreds of decisions a day, but that's their job and they're knowledgeable about the decisions they're making. Whereas I started to feel like every decision I had to make, I had to quickly use Dr. Google and like find out as much as possible quickly about a thing. What you want is to feel confident. <laughs> you wanna feel like your family member, your partner, your friend is in good hands, particularly when it's clear that it's the end. Even when we try and coach surrogates through these decisions, just getting the information across to them can be very challenging. Even the most medically literate surrogates can only take in a fraction of what we say when they're surrounded by stress. I uh, called over the physicians who were taking care of her and we set up a meeting. That was like kind of interesting too, just being on the receiving end of a meeting that I've, I've run those types of meetings a lot. And the interesting things that I remember from those meetings are despite having a medical background, I don't, I couldn't really absorb any, any of the, the medical information that the physicians were saying to me. And I, I wouldn't, I don't know if part of that was because I felt like my mom and I had already made the decision or just the stress of the situation, but they were mentioning all these medical terms that I know very well and have used myself, but they were not, I wasn't absorbing them. And so that's a big plug for one of our favorite communication tips. Always be sure to summarize everything really important at the end of any big talk and highlight clear next steps and expectations, because that may be all they hold on to. This brings us to a final point we learned from speaking to surrogates. Start these conversations early. First, make sure patients are aware of their own prognosis and understand what it means to designate a loved one as their surrogate decision maker. Clinicians need to have conversations with their patients about death. They need to have conversations with their patients about actual outcomes of serious illness. It's really important for clinicians to think, to you know, actually have a conversation about like, this is what is happening to you. This is what end-stage liver disease might look like. You know, if you sign your daughter up as a pro as a health proxy, like, do know that with end-stage liver disease, it is unlikely for you to just die in your sleep. It is more likely that you will have a medicalized death, and that is what this will look like. And I, th I think, I'm not going to say it's dishonest exactly, but I think it's a level of shirking of responsibility. 
of not under, understanding a whole person and also our society's like general aversion to talking about and thinking about what it means to live well and to die well. And involve surrogates early in advanced care planning discussions. If possible, have these conversations in the outpatient setting or during minor admissions where you know the patient is going to get discharged home. Even if the patient isn't at a point where the surrogate decision maker needs to be invoked, or even if they are, always involve the family more than you think you need to. There's, there's no such thing as too much family involvement. We wanted to wrap up with a few parting words. First, I wanted to thank Dr. Vig, Jenny, Ali, Mariah, and Judy for taking the time to speak with us for this episode. As moving as it was to conduct these interviews, to hear a viewpoint that tends not to be on center stage, it was humbling too. I have serious conversations with surrogates all the time, and I forget that events I see regularly can be a terrifying, once-in-a-lifetime experience for others. Surrogates walk into a role they may not be familiar with, and have to make emotionally charged decisions based on incomplete information. As clinicians, we struggle too. There are plenty of times where I've wondered whether a surrogate's decision truly reflects the patient's wishes. Plenty of times where the surrogate asks us to continue care that seems futile. These are hard choices, and every surrogate is going to have their own unique set of emotions and triggers and coping strategies. But we hope that bringing forward their voices has helped give you insight into what surrogates go through so that you can walk alongside them in difficult times. Thanks for tuning in. We know these topics can stir up more questions than answers, and we look forward to hearing more about your experiences working with surrogate decision makers. Please continue the conversation with us online at our Facebook page, on Twitter, or email us directly. Find show notes and contact information for us on our website, coreimpodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to our show, or if you know someone who did and feel comfortable representing their values, please give us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. It helps other people find us. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what we're doing right and how we can improve. And as always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Finally, special thanks to all our collaborators in this episode, our wonderful audio editor, Julius Kubij, music from Dakish Bhatia, illustrations from Michael Shen, moral and executive support from Shreya Trevetti, and most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.